Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1913, the 17th season of the VFL. Before we get to the football, let's have a look at what was happening around the world and in Melbourne in 1913. In Russia, they celebrated the 300th anniversary of the Romanovs' rule. I'm sure the Romanovs thought that their way of life would continue for many years to come. There was also war in the Balkans involving Greece, Serbia, Romania and Bulgaria. Sadly, there was not going to be much peace in that part of the world in the coming years. Berlin was getting ready to host the 1916 Olympics with the opening of the Deutsche Stadium. Those Olympics are not going to happen. Closer to home, the name Canberra was formally adopted for the Australian capital and the building of the city commenced. I think you would agree that Canberra is a better option than some of the alternative names suggested, such as Olympus, Kangaroo, Eucalyptia, and my favourite, Wheat Wool Gold. There was also an outbreak of smallpox in Sydney, which meant that Carlton's end-of-season trip had to be shifted to a new location. Not the last time that a virus outbreak would change travel plans for football clubs. On a more domestic level, 1913 saw two innovations that would become a part of everyday life for millions of people. The first crossword puzzle was published in the New York World newspaper. Not sure when the footy record first included a crossword to keep the kids busy at half-time. The second innovation was far less healthy. The first packaged cigarettes, Camel, were released. Prior to this, people had to roll their own. So let's focus on the footy now. Early in the year, the papers were concentrating on the troubled finances of the clubs in an analysis that would be familiar in almost any decade of the league's existence. Many of the clubs were struggling. Despite record revenues from the crowds attending the game, the ever-increasing payments to players were putting the clubs into debt. Pivot, writing in The Age, was not happy with the demands of the players for more money and other benefits. He predicted that before long, clubs would have to start paying for perfumed baths, allowances for players out of work, and dinners for lady friends. Not all clubs were guilty of encouraging such excessive demands. Collingwood had a standard payment process for all players. This involved a set fee each week, plus an additional payment when the player was selected for a game, and then a bonus system that began after three seasons of service. And there was an insurance option if the player missed out on their normal work due to football injuries. It was pointed out that Collingwood did not seem to lack in champion players nor want for new recruits each year. We will see if other clubs move to systematic payment structures in coming years. To help strengthen the club's negotiating position, the league adopted a new rule early in 1913, removing the right of appeal for players seeking clearances. This meant that if a club did not agree to a player moving, that player would have to sit out of the game. The intent was to reduce the movement of players in search of higher payments. Another effort to raise funds was suggested by Richmond's delegate to the VFL, Councillor Peacon Beechworth, who proposed that membership tickets not be recognised for the finals, meaning that members of the competing clubs would have to pay to watch their team in the finals. The additional gate takings to be distributed to all clubs, with some proceeds, going to an injured player fund. The motion was lost. I did like Councillor Peacon Beechworth's comment, that football was too cheap. Each member of a club saw his game for about three pennies a game. And the ongoing question today about broadcast revenue has the same issue at its root. How much is it worth to watch a game of football? 
On the other hand, perhaps it was easy for Richmond to suggest that members' tickets for the two competing clubs not be recognised for finals admission. They had never made the finals. An early example of the power to stop a player moving, albeit not by VFL rules, was the attempt by Dave McNamara to leave the VFA Essendon Club to play for St Kilda. In the Argus it was reported that he had been told there would be no obstacle and so he had purchased the club hotel in St Kilda. At 6 foot 4 he was a giant of the era and a prodigious long kick, reported to have sent a place kick 97 yards. He had played for St Kilda from 1905 to 1909 before getting into dispute with the administration and leaving to play with a VFA Essendon club. But now, fences were mended and he was looking to return. As it happened, the club did clear him, but the VFA Permit Committee vetoed the move and there was no appeal. It would be another year before McNamara could play with the Saints, but surely that wouldn't matter. The Saints really had much impact in the season. South Melbourne's committee created a surprise in the week before the season began. Normally, being your club's most recent Premiership captain coach, and having just captain coached the team into a grand final, would be applauded. If the players then elected you as captain, you would assume that the committee would support you. But the South Melbourne committee refused to make Charlie Ricketts captain, so he left the club, returning to Richmond, where he had started his career when they were in the VFA. He would play for the Black and Yellow Club for two more seasons. The 1913 season opened on Saturday the 26th of April. Essendon unfurled their premiership flag and then lost to Carlton. The other grand finalist from last year, South Melbourne, won at home against St Kilda, but in a game that was much closer than many expected, South winning by just nine points in a game that had been tight all day. After four rounds, the season was taking on a different feel to the previous year. Essendon lost its first four games. Collingwood, making up for the disappointment of missing finals in 1912, won their first four games, as did South Melbourne. There was trouble in the Melbourne change rooms before their round four game. After the round three game against Carlton, Melbourne's Jack Bristow had been charged by the police for striking George Chalice. Melbourne's committee failed to defend the player and left Bristow to face the charges on his own as they believed that the player should accept the consequences of his actions. Before the Fitzroy match, several Melbourne players decided that they would strike in support of Bristow. Chairman Bill McClellan was forced to threaten that they would never play football again, and the players backed down. Not surprisingly, Fitzroy won the game to be three wins out of four. Round six was held in atrocious weather. Two members of the Adverse Weather Committee did meet on Saturday morning, but they were split on the question of play, and so the round proceeded. Despite the rain and the biting south wind, people still came to the games to see the grounds covered with water, players sliding through the mud, and the age reported that the acrobatic exhibitions by the players made up for the lack of proper football. The scene was set for a big clash in round eight, which was only two days after round seven. The VFL was not yet fully on board with split rounds, so on the King's birthday holiday on Monday the 9th of June, all clubs lined up to play round eight, a two-day turnaround in today's jargon. Collingwood were undefeated and Fitzroy had only lost one game, surprisingly to St Kilda. The clash between the neighbouring rivals attracted a big crowd at Victoria Park and Fitzroy won by 10 points to take top spot on the ladder with their higher percentage. July and August 1913 saw the first formal attempts to develop a footballers' union. 
a Mr. J.L. Dow, described as a very old member of the St Kilda Club and a football enthusiast, had sent a letter to the captains of the VFL and VFA clubs to look at forming an association. The McNamara case being one example where players could benefit by having organised representation. Further progress was made in September when the Football Players Council appointed Mr G Roberts, formerly the Secretary of the VFA Essendon team, as their permanent secretary. It will be interesting to see how much influence the Players Council has in coming seasons. An even more surprising series of events relating to league administration happened in the second half of the season. The VFL and VFA had an outbreak of civility and cooperation after many years of bitter rivalry. First of all, there was an agreement to have a delegate from each organisation at their respective meetings. Then in August, the VFL decided to transfer a Melbourne-Richmond game from the MCG to Punt Road so the VFA could play their semi-final at the MCG. The Herald described this state of affairs as the lion and the lamb lying down together. Not sure how long this unprecedented politeness will continue, but it won't last. The makeup of the final four was decided in round 17, the second last round of the season. Fitzroy defeated Collingwood for the second time this season to lock in top spot. They had only lost two games all season in a dominant performance. South Melbourne and Collingwood were sure to make the final four. It was just a question of which position. The surprise packet was St Kilda. After a slow start to the season, they had got onto a winning streak. In round 15, they surprised everyone, probably including themselves, by beating Carlton by one point after scoring a goal with the very last kick of the day. Then, in round 16, they beat top four team Collingwood, and in round 17, they beat last year's Premier's Essendon at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground. A series of wins the Saints had not achieved in many years. This left Geelong unable to make the finals like they did in 1912. They might have had some joy in beating St Kilda at home in the last round of the season, but some of the reports indicated that the Saints rested players and treated the trip to Geelong as a bit of a holiday before the finals began. South Melbourne made sure of second spot on the ladder by defeating Collingwood. The other highlight of the final round was at Punt Road. University lost, as they had all season, but their full forward Roy Park kicked five goals to top the goal kicking for the season, with 53 goals. Even Richmond supporters helped chair him off the ground to the change rooms. Leading the goal kicking in a team that finished on the bottom of the ladder without winning a game is an impressive effort. The final four for 1913 had three new teams compared to 1912, with Fitzroy and Collingwood returning to familiar September action and St Kilda players probably cancelling their planned holidays. Carlton players and supporters would have been feeling confused. They had played in every finals campaign since 1903, but not this year. The first semi-final was South Melbourne versus St Kilda and the second semi was top place Fitzroy versus third place Collingwood. Fitzroy, of course, having the all-important right of challenge by finishing the season on top of the ladder. The first semi-final was held on Saturday the 6th of September in front of 40,000 people. The umpire was, of course, Jack Elder. South had won the two games during the season and the Herald considered South as the firm favourite. This was the Saints' third time in the finals in 17 VFL seasons and they had yet to win a final. One problem for South was the loss of one of their best players in unusual circumstances. Earlier in the season, Bill Strang had moved to Albury to start a business. Instead of coming to Melbourne for the last round, as he normally did, 
he played for Aubrey against Rutherglen. The VFL permit and umpire committee ruled that this made Strang an interstate player and he would need to get a clearance from the New South Wales League before he could play for South again. Oops. One Saints player may be familiar to you even at this great distance of time. Roy Kazali was playing in his third season after debuting for the Saints in 1911 when many senior players went on strike. The great call of up there Kazali would not come until later in his career when he had moved to South Melbourne, but today he was playing his first final. It turned out to be a rather one-sided game, with the Saints showing that the loss to Geelong in the last game of the season had not impacted their form when it really counted. As Observer said, there were more playing good football for the winners than for the losers. It did seem that every time South managed to score a goal, St Kilda were able to reply with one or more of their own. Pivot, writing in The Age, described the Saints as more versatile and playing superior football. Perhaps if South had kicked more accurately, they might have put more pressure on St Kilda, but as we all know, bad kicking is bad football. The final scores were St Kilda 12 goals 12-84 to South Melbourne 6 goals 15-45. The only finalist from the previous year had been eliminated and St Kilda had won their first final. There was some bitterness after the game from South Melbourne supporters. There were allegations of players having been paid off and gamblers having stolen the game. South supporters had trouble accepting that St Kilda could have beaten them just fair and square. The Herald reported that one well-known South player, incensed at the unjust treatment by a section of supporters, had declared he would never play for South again, and a committeeman had resigned. We will see if this continues to play out next year. A possibly more insightful analysis came from a Mr John Milne, who was both an inspecting superintendent of police and the father of Herbert Milne, one of the best players of recent years. Mr Milne thought that the reason was more to do with psychology than physical fitness or ability. Quote, The mental strain that affects all players prior to a final plays havoc with a number of the Southerners. A number of them funk to such a degree that the efforts of the whole are paralysed. So the terminology and the jargon may be a little different to what's used today, but now you know that sports psychological analysis has a long history in football. The second semi-final was held the following Saturday, with the top team Fitzroy taking on third place Collingwood in front of 43,000 people, who were hoping for a more exciting match than the first semi, but they were to be disappointed. Fitzroy were the favourites, having finished on top of the ladder and having beaten the Magpies twice, the last time in the second last game of the season. There was heavy rain before and during the game, including hail at times, making the surface of the ground slippery, but this seemed to impact the Collingwood players more than those wearing the maroon jumpers. The first quarter was a hard, strenuous 30 minutes, and the Magpies were a goal up when the bell rang, but the rest of the game was played on Fitzroy's terms. They ran out winners, with Pivot in the age saying that there was hardly a weak man on the winning side. Final scores were Fitzroy, 11 goals, 14, 80 points, to Collingwood's 6-7, 43. The final was now down to St Kilda and Fitzroy, the Saints having the bigger challenge, knowing that they would have to beat the Maroons twice to claim the Premiership. That is the benefit of finishing the home away season on top of the ladder. Nearly 55,000 people gathered at the MCG on Saturday the 20th of September. Fitzroy supporters were sad to hear that their dashing sentiment, Harold Lal McLennan, 
was a late withdrawal due to his father's illness. Harold had been captain in 1911 and club champion in both 1912 and 1913, a key player and sure to be missed. But the Maroons were still favourites. They'd only lost two games all season, and St Kilda had only just made it into the Final Four. Given that it was a final, the umpire was obviously Jack Elder. The first quarter started at a great pace, with footballers throwing themselves into the game. After two lacklustre semi-finals, it seemed that the record crowd was in for a tense, hard-fought game. The Saints got the first goal, and then Fitzroy settled, and their champion forward, James Freak, scored their first goal. The ball was moving up and down the ground, and both teams were strong in defence. But suddenly, a change occurred. The catalyst might have been St Kilda centreman Bill Schmidt, who goaled with a long place kick. From the centre bounce, the ball moved quickly back down to the Saints' forward line, where George Morrissey kicked another goal. Within a few minutes, the Saints had gone three goals up, with Ruckman, Vic Cumberland, getting into the action. The quarter-time scores gave the Saints supporters joy, and the Maroons' barrackers reason to wonder. St Kilda, four goals 2-26, to Fitzroy, one goal 2-8. Not the way that many expected the game to start. In the second quarter, Fitzroy moved to a more attacking style of game putting pressure back on the Saints, who seemed to get a bit rattled. Despite young Roy Cazaley adding a goal to their score, it was the Maroons that dominated the quarter, picking up goals regularly. And with two minutes to go in the first half, Fitzroy half-forward flanker Jim Tui put them in front with their fifth goal. The half-time score was St Kilda on 5 goals 4-34, trailing Fitzroy on 5-6-36. The half-time crowd was buzzing. Could the Saints keep up the pressure? Would they force the Maroons back for another game to decide the Premiership? Or would Fitzroy come out after half-time and show why they had been on top of the ladder for most of the season? Early in the third quarter, Roy Cazaly took off for a long run. Too long, according to some, but not the umpire. And his kick was accurate. The Saints had the all-important first goal to get their momentum going. Fitzroy tried to put pressure on the Saints, but their defence was holding up. Then in what Observer in the Argus described as the turning point, a series of accurate passes saw George Morrissey score another goal. The third quarter had seen St Kilda on top, but their advantage was only two goals, close enough for Fitzroy to bridge the gap, but also enough to give encouragement to the Sainters. The final quarter surprised all but the most faithful St Kilda supporters. Fitzroy were expected to be fitter, but it was the Saints who ran on. Kazali getting the first goal of the quarter, which sparked something of a run for the Saints. It soon became obvious that St Kilda had control of the game. The Maroons did score one goal, their only goal of the second half, while the Saints added three for the quarter. They even had time to inject some unintentional comedy into the affair. The Saints centre-half forward passed the ball onto Roy Kazali, standing all on his own, in the clear, in front of goal. He was a young player at this point in his career, and perhaps late in the fourth quarter, he was a bit exhausted. First, he fell over. Then, he failed to pick up the ball. And then, he finally got it into his hands, by which time Fitzroy players were charging in from every angle. So, he took his shot, four metres out from the goals, and hit the post. But, it did not matter. The Saints were going to win the game, and Roy Cazaly would go on to a career that is remembered for his brilliance, rather than this incident. The Saints had created their opportunity to win the Premiership by forcing the season into a grand final. The score was St Kilda, 10 goals 10, 70, to Fitzroy, 6 goals 9, 45. 
The crowd went home eager to see the two teams battle it out the next Saturday to decide the premiership. Fitzroy would have to deal with the tribunal because Tom Willoughby and Tom Heaney had been reported for using their elbows. Willoughby was found guilty of deliberately elbowing Percy Jory, who said his eardrum was ruptured and he was deaf in that ear. Willoughby was suspended until the end of July 1914. The charge against Tom Heaney was dismissed, freeing him to play in the grand final. The grand final was held on Saturday, September 27th. St Kilda's surprise win a week earlier had created even more interest, and the crowd was a record 60,000 people, basically 10% of Melbourne's population. This broke the record set just a week earlier in the first final between these two teams. Perhaps country visitors in town for the Royal Melbourne show decided to get in a football game, along with those catching the special trains from all points of the state to see this blockbuster game. Large crowds attended training sessions of both clubs. The Saints would go into the game with the same team that had won their last two games. The Maroons would lose Willoughby to suspension, but their champion sentiment, Lyle McLennan, would be back, returning to the team after the death of his father. A challenging time to come back into the team for the biggest game of the year. Fred Bamford, the Fitzroy halfbackman, had the extraordinary bad luck to injure his leg at training on the Thursday night and missed team selection for the first time in three seasons. Arthur Harrison was brought into the team. He had played 10 games for the season, so was familiar with the team and its style of playing. Players were issued new numbers by the league to help undermine unofficial publications of player lists and ensure the football record was the only place people could go to get the accurate list of player numbers. For the price of a penny, of course. As in the previous year, it was decided that Charles Brownlow, the former Geelong great and long-time league delegate, would speak to both teams before the game on the desirability of playing the game as it should be and leaving any malicious intent aside. The curtain raiser this year was between senior army cadets of Port Melbourne versus North Melbourne army cadets. It may not be well remembered now, but in 1910 the Australian government had made it compulsory for boys from 12 to 14 to sign up for junior military cadet training and those between 14 to 18 had to attend senior cadet training. Boys could be fined for missing their cadet training and there was, at times, friction between boys wanting to play for their local football teams and attending cadet training obligations. The umpire was, of course, Jack Elder. There actually had been some criticism in the leader before the grand final, declaring that his efforts in the previous match had been below his usual form and that he was not entitled to a monopoly on the final matches. But the VFL clearly thought otherwise, and, to be fair, other reviews of the previous week had praised his control of the game. St Kilda's captain was Harry Lever, their fullback who had started with the Saints in 1905. In 1907 he lost two fingers to a bandsaw accident, but after attending to the wound himself, he played the following afternoon. Bred them tough in those days. In 1911 he had led the player strike that was kicked off by the committee withdrawing dressing room tickets for players' guests. But now, two years later, he was leading the club into their first grand final. Known for his skill at drop kicks, he had also sent a place kick 72 yards. His career would extend to 1922 for a total of 218 games, which stood as a club record for 50 years. The Saints coach was George Sparrow, who had played with the Saints for one season in 1899 after stints with Richmond and South Melbourne. This was his first year as coach. 
and he had his team into the grand final. Fitzroy's captain was Bill Walker. He had played in a losing grand final in his first year with the Maroons in 1903, before winning two flags in 04 and 05. Now he was leading his team into the grand final. A tough and ruthless ruckman, known for his shepherding and body work around the ball. He was said to be widely respected and admired at Fitzroy, but loathed by opponents and opposition supporters. Fitzroy had a playing coach, but not captain, in Percy Parrott. He may not have been the most spectacular player, but few were more effective, and he was the embodiment of football brains. Spectators were jammed into the MCG. Some were sitting in trees around the ground, and others took to the roofs of grandstands to improve their view. Never had so many people been squeezed into the ground. Police did try and clear some of the rooftop spectators. One constable nearly slid off the sloping roof of a booth, entertaining the crowd with his acrobatic skills as he prevented his fall. He was luckier than his colleague, who had used a somewhat frail ladder to climb up to where some boys had grabbed their vantage point. Sadly, the ladder was not up to the job, and the constable fell and injured his leg. An ambulance was called, but he was able to limp to the train station and go home. I doubt that there was any OHNS follow-up in those days. The St Kilda players received a great cheer when they entered the ground. They were clearly the crowd favourites, though Percy Jory may not have heard it as clearly with his busted eardrum from the week before. Lyle McLennan also received cheers from the supporters of all clubs as he entered the ground, recognising the effort that he was making to play despite his family's loss. Fred Bamford also got cheers when he was seen walking around the boundary with the aid of a stick after his injury at training. The Saints had the wind for the first quarter, but it would not help them. Fitzroy were known for their physical style of game, but in this match, they focused much more on the ball. Before they had gone out onto the ground, their captain had made the instructions for the day clear. His final words were, hands off. This change of style paid off with running accurate play, delivering two goals in the first four minutes, kicking into the wind. This was followed up in the middle of the quarter when Percy Parrott had a shot at goal that missed, but their full forward, Charlie Norris, picked up the rebound and scored the Maroons' third goal. The Saints were outplayed all through the first quarter. It seemed that this third final match for 1913 was going to be a bridge too far for them. The quarter-time score was Fitzroy, 3 goals, 6-24, to the Saints, no goals, one behind, one point. The Saints could not make much of an impact in the second quarter either. They were playing a little better, but could not score a goal. Their best opportunity was lost due to an unusual rule of the time. The ball had gone into their forward line, and the St Kilda full forward Bill Woodcock was stretched out with his arms held high when the maroon skipper Bill Walker charged in, bringing Woodcock to the ground. Perhaps Bill Walker forgot the instructions that he'd given his team before the game. Woodcock was awarded a free kick, but lying on the ground with trainers fanning him with towels, he could not take his kick in front of goal. Rather than allowing another player to take the free... The rule at the time specified a ball up, and the Maroons cleared the danger zone. Woodcock did receive a cheer when he finally stood up, but the Saints would go to half-time without a goal to their name. The score at the long break was Fitzroy, 4 goals 8, 32, St Kilda, no goals, 5 behinds, 5 points. Half-time entertainment in the 1913 Grand Final did not involve marching bands or a sprint race, instead three Indigenous Australians put on a display of boomerang and spear-throwing. They were rewarded with a shower of small coins from the spectators. 
the Fitzroy supporters enjoyed the half-time. They could see the season ending as it should, with their boys on top as they had been for the whole year. For the Saints Barrackers, the dream of a first premiership was beginning to turn into a nightmare. They had not even scored a goal. One change after half-time was the move of one of the Saints' best players, Schmidt, away from his battle in the centre with Al McClellan. Schmidt moved to the forward line in the hope he could have more influence on the game and provide some direction to goal for St Kilda. And for a moment early in the quarter, it seemed to work. As described by the Herald, Schmidt turned like a hare and passed to Phil Lynch, who kicked it onto Algie Milhouse in the forward pocket. But like so many times before, the shot at goal went astray and it was just another behind added to the score. However, the next move forward was more successful. Bob Bowden took the ball on the wing and kicked it to Algie Milhouse, who took a clean mark. This time he shot with the required accuracy and St Kilda had their first goal. More importantly, they were starting to get some momentum in a game that had been dominated by Fitzroy. The Maroons' centre-half back, Wally Johnson, gave away a free kick to the Saints' ruckman Vic Cumberland. While Vic lined up his shot, Wally Johnson sprinted towards the last line of defence and then rose above the pack to take a spectacular mark, saving the situation that he had created by giving away the free kick. The ball moved into Fitzroy's forward line, and this time their playing coach, Percy Parrott, gathered the ball and scored their fifth goal. Three-quarter time saw the Maroons still well on top, five goals 11-41 to St Kilda, one goal 10-16. But the St Kilda supporters might have drawn some consolation from the fact that they had had six shots at goal to four that quarter. If they'd kicked more accurately, they might have even started to put some pressure on Fitzroy. But the Maroons had also been inaccurate in front of goal. The truth was, the Maroons were in the box seat with one quarter of football left in the season. And the first ten minutes of the fourth quarter also belonged to Fitzroy. It really seemed just to be a matter of playing out time before the celebrations could begin in earnest. Some of the Fitzroy supporters were already celebrating the win, but there was one more twist to come. The Saints centre-half forward Ernie Sellers took a good mark and kicked straight through the middle. St Kilda had their second goal. Perhaps a bit of face-saving as the game went down. Then, at the centre bounce, Ted Collins tapped the ball to Schmidt, who passed it onto the forward pocket Des Baird, who turned round and put another goal on the board within a minute. The Saints supporters started finding their voice. The Fitzroy players surely spoke to each other, reminding themselves to keep focused and play the game to the end. But still, they were surely safe. The ball flew down into St Kilda's forward line again. The game was moving faster than it had all day, and this time it was forward pocket George Morrissey who scored the goal. Now they were only ten points down, and the noise from the crowd was deafening. The biggest crowd ever gathered to watch a game was finally getting a game worth the occasion. There was a bit more action and a few more behinds kicked, but then Schmidt, playing like a man possessed, again cleared the ball, this time into the hands of the waiting George Morrissey, who got his second goal in a row, and the gap was down to two points. Morrissey got the ball again and could have put his side in front, but this time it went through for a point and the lead was down to a single point. Five goals 14 to the Saints on five goals 13. A draw would mean the team's coming back for a third week, A goal to the Saints would surely break Fitzroy's spirit. And there were still eight minutes to go. The game had been turned upside down. The Saints' dead spared had the ball on the half-forward flank. On a slight angle, but easily within kicking distance. 
Then a call from Ruckman Vic Cumberland to centre the ball to him. And a moment that defined the game and a season and maybe St Kilda's history for another 40 years or so. Fitzroy's halfback flanker, George Cooper, intercepted the pass and cleared the ball out of defence, a moment in time that could have changed everything. Perhaps that broke the spell. Fitzroy rallied and scored two more goals, finally putting the result beyond doubt. There had been more action in the last 15 minutes of the game than the three and a half quarters before, but no one that was there would ever forget what they saw. The final scores, Fitzroy, 7 goals 14, 56, to St Kilda, a gallant, 5 goals 13, 43. In truth, Fitzroy had been the better team for the whole season, and the better team for most of this grand final. They were worthy premiers, their fifth premiership to make them the most successful VFL club to date. But I can only wonder how St Kilda's history would have been if they had managed to grab an unexpected victory in that final quarter flourish. In the Fitzroy change rooms after the game, amidst the celebrations, their captain, Bill Walker, said, quote, I'm proud of the team. I think we thoroughly deserve the premiership. I really thought we were gone towards the end, but our fellows responded grandly, didn't they? Good luck to Lever and St Kilda. They stuck us up this season, and they'll do the same next year if they keep the men together, unquote. He then announced his retirement, ending his career with a premiership the way to go out. Things were quieter in the Saints' room, where the captain Harry Lever said, We met a better team on the day, and Fitzroy have my congratulations. No one will begrudge us second place, for we have come along well. The players tried to do what they were told, but we met better men. One side had to fail, and it was ours. The post-season reviews were generally positive, although there was some criticism of clubs focusing on players with strength and size rather than skill. But with two record crowds attending the last two final games, it was clear the public was continuing its enthusiastic embrace of the local game. The question of money was still an issue. Two options were discussed, capping the player payments or setting up district zones so players were tied to a club and could not go to the highest bidder. Both schemes had been explored by the league before and rejected, but maybe as the cost of running clubs keeps on rising, there might be enough pressure to cause a change. After missing a year, the annual match between the Premiers of South Australia and Victoria was on again this year. Fitzroy travelling to Adelaide, missing four of their Premiership players, to take on Port Adelaide for the Premiership of Australia. But with the game being played on eight-hour day in Adelaide, where there were many other attractions, the crowd was estimated at only 6,000. It was said to be close until half-time, but then Port Adelaide went on to win easily, a 63-point thrashing. Port Adelaide, 12 goals 16 to Fitzroy on a lowly 4 goals 6. Port Adelaide were the premiers of Australia. Fitzroy must have left their form back in Victoria when they caught the train across. Or perhaps it was seen as more of a holiday than a serious game. The match was not even reported in the Victorian press. You had to look up the Adelaide papers to see what happened. In other news, the Hawthorne Football Club began its journey to success by being admitted to the VFA for season 1914. I assume the VFA officials were expecting Hawthorne to stay in the VFA longer than they did. But that's a story for a future episode. So that was season 1913. After knocking on the door of the finals for two years, Fitzroy had obtained the premiership that gave them leadership in the VFL. St Kilda had barnstormed their way into the finals and almost pulled off an improbable premiership. They had gained many admirers, 
but on a downside, their annual report showed that they had ended the season £60 deeper in debt than when they started. Perhaps some of those admirers will take out membership or attend more games in 1914. So join me next time when we explore 1914, the 18th season of the VFL, and a year where people will have many things other than football to consider. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History. <laughs>